Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer on this January 5th, 2024. Much of the hour, as you can imagine, we focus on the aftermath of the shooting yesterday at Perry High School that left one sixth grader dead. Uh, the teenage gunman, identified by police as Dylan Butler, took his own life. Five were wounded. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation I had earlier today with David Reedman. He's founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database. Uh, that database has been tracking uh, this data since the school shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018. We'll have his insights on how the Perry shooting fits into other school shootings across the country. Also, his thoughts on how best to prevent such tragedies. For details on what happened yesterday, a recap uh, about what happened yesterday morning, we turn to Natalie Krebs, who was on site in Perry soon after the shooting, has been following the story, reporting for us uh, here uh, on IPR. Hi, Natalie. Hey, Ben. Has the name of the shooting victim, the sixth grader, been released yet? No, we haven't gotten any official names of any of the victims yet. Um, we just know there are six total, um, five students, and then one school administrator. And as you mentioned before, Ben, that one only one confirmed death, which unfortunately was a sixth grade student. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about the status of those injured? So just what they told us yesterday, basically, um, it sounds like no life-threatening injuries to the five people who were injured in this shooting. They were saying, you know, one person was in critical condition yesterday, but seemed like they weren't going to have life-threatening injuries. Um, Everyone seems to be stable at this moment, though it appears that there have been some pretty serious injuries from this shooting. What do we know about what happened, the the timeline, as far as we can tell now, based on what uh, authorities have have told us? Right. um, We have just kind of a basic timeline, which is, um, you know, the shooter, Dylan Butler, a 17-year-old student at Perry High School, um, opened fire at 7.37 a.m. This was in the morning before school had started. And from my understanding, it was a breakfast program. So there were students of mixed grades there, so not necessarily high school students, which is why we, we had that middle school student there as well. Um, police received 911 calls and were dispatched very quickly. We had, you know, over 100 officers there and responded within minutes. Um and found 17-year-old Dylan Butler dead from apparently a self-inflicted gun wound. Mm -hmm. There was also an improvised explosive device found and disarmed. Right. And they said that they also found, yes, a homemade explosive device that was pretty rudimentary, and they they had ruled it, you know, safe, not not a threat. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I understand there were indications that uh, Dylan Butler, uh, the 17-year-old shooter, had um, forewarned of, of what he had planned. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, again, all we kind of know about that is he had posted a TikTok post where he was, you know, hiding before the shooting, kind of saying that he was, you know, ex- expecting this. Um 
Still getting kind of more information. Yesterday at the press conference, we really didn't get any information on motive. Um, Perry is a town that has a very high Latino population. I've gotten a lot of questions as to whether there was a racial motivation behind this. We just, we don't know that yet. That's something authorities continue to look into and something will continue to follow with this story. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know you were at the press conference, uh, uh, but I want to play and perhaps have your comment on other information released at these press conferences yesterday. But uh, first of all, uh, let's listen to a bit of the Perry Police Chief Eric Vaughn in his comments yesterday, obviously uh, struggling with the tragedy as he delivered the information here. And I cannot forget to recognize the teachers, faculty, and students involved who acted bravely and heroically in this tragic situation. Thank you to the community support we have seen and we will continue to need in the future. All of our condolences to the victims and their families. They need your thoughts and prayers as well as time and space to process and to grieve. Perry Police Chief Eric Vaughn uh, yesterday. Uh, what else can you tell us uh, that was revealed at these uh, press conferences yesterday? Yeah, there there wasn't a whole lot of information revealed. Um, most of it's already been reported. I mean, as you heard, he was very emotional. The law enforcement agents that spoke at both press conferences yesterday looked pretty shaken after this event. Um, we've, you know, they haven't, as you mentioned, they haven't released names of the victims yet. However, we did see that Perry High School principal, um, Dan Marburger, his daughter, Claire, had posted on Facebook that her father was the one who had been shot. She confirmed that he was one of the victims, probably the school administrator. Um, he had been in surgery yesterday and appears to be in stable condition, um, yeah, we're still waiting for a lot of details on this shooting, including the names of the victims. I think I, I saw there, perhaps in the Des Moines Register, that the the principal had had worked um, to distract the shooter and uh, to help um, uh, students exit that cafeteria. Yeah, that's that's what um, some media accounts, like the Des Moines Register, are reporting from, you know, witness accounts, people they've talked to, that the principal was there to kind of help the situation. But again, we really don't know exactly what happened yet. We kind of just, from officials, just have this really rudimentary timeline on what happened and the fact that we had six victims total. Um, some of yeah. the bigger details are kind of still unknown. Okay, uh, we'll be reporting on that, of course, here on IPR. Um, when are we likely to know more, uh, Natalie? Definitely in the next couple of days. You know, this is a rapidly unfolding situation, so I'm, you know, waiting to hear from law enforcement um, about updates, you know, including victim names and status and, and more details on the motivation behind this. I know that's a big question that people really have on their minds and in a town like Perry that's so close-knit. So, you know, I would expect this is a rapidly unfolding situation. I would expect to just be getting continuing updates on what's going on. IPR reporter Natalie Krebs, who was on site, uh, reporting for us uh, in Perry, Iowa. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you, Ben. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. 
a tragedy here in Iowa yesterday. One student killed, five others injured after a school shooting at Perry High School yesterday morning. Police responded to an emergency activation just after 7.30 in the morning. This was just before classes resumed after the holiday break. Uh, Police have identified 17-year-old Dylan Butler as the shooter. Authorities say he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Earlier today, I spoke with David Reedman. He's the founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database. Uh, This database has been tracking uh, this data since the school shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018. David Reedman, welcome to our program. Thank you very much for having me. Before I ask you for your thoughts on this shooting, based on what we know um, about 24 hours after the occurrence of this shooting, introduce us to the database you founded in 2018. Uh, Why and what does it track? Yeah, right after the Parkland shooting in 2018, I was in a program that was focused on emerging issues in Homeland Security. And even though I'd been working in homeland security and counterterrorism and intelligence for more than a decade, school shootings had never been talked about as a national level priority. Um, So Parkland felt different. And I wanted to know kind of where it fit in the context of school shootings. And there really was no public data available. We couldn't answer simple questions like how many shootings happened this year or how many school shootings had happened ever. Uh, so this research project has been an effort to use open source information to provide as much data as possible so that we can understand and address this problem. Yeah, it's um, uh, quite a database that you've built up. Um, people can find it at uh, k12ssdb.org, k12ssdb.org. Um, tell us, in the big picture, How common are school shootings in our country, this being recognized as the first school shooting of 2024 and happening on the fourth day of the year? So by looking at shootings at schools, there's actually no definition. There's no legal definition of what a school shooting is. And so for this project, I decided to collect as much information as possible and document any time that a gun is fired on school property. And from there, other researchers can take subsets of that data for specific questions. Um, Interestingly, this year, this is actually the fourth shooting that's happened uh, at a school. On New Year's Day, a man in Louisiana fired 100 Mm -hmm. shots with an AR-15 rifle um, on school property. And then there were two different shootings um, at schools just the day before this. Okay, David, I was going off uh, information from the Washington Post uh, there that this was the first school shooting, but it's sobering to know that this is not. Go on, please. Yes. So through this research effort to put together the holistic picture of gun violence on school property, it's not just deliberate attacks like what happened at Perry Middle and High School yesterday or the Covenant School in Nashville or Uvalde or Parkland. It's getting this broader picture of gun violence on school property. And thus far this year, students sitting in a classroom at an elementary school in Tennessee had a bullet through the classroom window on the third, the same day 
a teenage girl was shot by a 14-year-old during a fight uh, at a school in Virginia. So what this paints the picture of is actually there's a shooting at a school almost every day of the year. There were 346 shootings at schools last year. That was up 12% from 308 in 2022 and part of a six-year escalation of gun violence on school property. In just a moment, more of my conversation with David Reedman, founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back now with more River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's get back to more of my conversation with David Reedman, founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database, in the aftermath of the shooting at Perry High School yesterday morning. David, the investigation is ongoing. We'll hear more about that in the hours and in the days to come. There's much we do not know Um, Our thoughts, of course, with the wounded victims, their families, the community of Perry, and of course, the family of that sixth grader who was killed here uh, as well. Uh, With the investigation continuing into the motive, what are your thoughts uh, about uh, what happened in Perry yesterday? From the information that's available so far, Perry fits the profile of hundreds of other attacks that I've studied over the last 60 years. School shootings are not random. They're usually committed by somebody with a direct connection to the campus, usually a current student or a former student, and that person develops a specific grievance that they direct towards the school. And as that grievance is unresolved and they continue to experience trauma, that builds and builds and builds to a point where they think that violence is their only option and the school shooting is a final act uh, because they believe that that is the only pathway that they have forward. And when you have this period of crisis and this pathway to violence, there's an opportunity to intervene in the weeks and months and even years before the shooting happens. Mm-hmm. So um, you... you um... Uh, mentioned this in your Substack article uh, about the Perry shooting, um, and you're referring to it without saying it. So bullying, evidently a part of this story, as in many other school shootings. Yeah, from interviews with other students, there are reports that both the attacker and his sister were bullied, and that had escalated uh, to the point of violence. And that is by no way to excuse violence or excuse a school shooting. But the only way that we can prevent these attacks is if we understand them. And if we understand these 
commonalities, if we understand that pathway to violence, and we think about and set up systems to identify someone who's in crisis and take action to help them, we can prevent these attacks before it ever gets to the point of bringing a gun to campus. David, an improvised explosive device was found uh, at the Perry High School and disarmed. Um, how common is that, and, and what does this tell you about the plans of the shooter? Many people think of a school shooting as exclusively involving guns, but going all the way back to the Columbine attack in 1999, that wasn't planned as a school shooting at all. There were hundreds of improvised explosive devices placed all over the school, and it was intended to be an even larger and more destructive uh, explosion than the Oklahoma City bombing. When the bombs didn't go off, it turned into a shooting. But a common thread both in the United States and internationally is that bombs, explosives, flammable materials, chemicals are often part of the plan for an attack. And that's really important for school administrators and anyone involved in school security planning to think about because the procedure has become lock down the school, have students shelter inside classrooms. But if somebody is planning to release chemicals, detonate an explosive, or light the building on fire, it can actually be an even more dangerous situation to have students barricaded inside where they're not going to be able to easily exit the building. Yeah, based on what we know uh, about the school reaction, I think law enforcement was on the scene in something like six or seven minutes in this case. Uh, How do you evaluate what we know about the school reaction in Perry, the law enforcement? There's not enough information to evaluate that at this point from what we can hear. The shooter was likely already dead uh, when police arrived. These shootings usually are over very, very quickly. Talk about the planning factors here. You write about this um... Uh, in, uh, in your Substack article on the Perry shooting, uh, critical planning factors frequently overlooked by police and school administrators. A lot of school security planning, things like lockdown drills and police um, exercises, are designed around students being inside of a classroom and somebody trying to shoot their way into the school. So a a mysterious bad guy attacker is trying to get into the building. The students are inside classrooms. If they can lock down inside a fortified classroom, that person won't be able to get to them. That's the general planning assumption in school security. The reality is that attacks happen at all different times of the school day. In this case, when it's 15 minutes before first period classes start. Teachers may not be set up yet. Uh, The school police officer may not have arrived to be starting work during this period. And this has been exactly when planned attacks have happened in the past. Uh, Very few people know about the shooting at at Marshall County High School in Kentucky. Uh, That was three weeks before Parkland, but 20 students were shot in the school during a planned attack right before first period started when they were gathering by the cafeteria. 
in the same sense, uh, a lot of school security planning is based on students being inside the classroom. But looking at the data from 2,600 shootings, it's actually more likely for it to happen in places like the cafeteria and hallway than a classroom. What does this tell you about how our prevention efforts should change? From interviews with students who were there at school, it sounds like students decided to run immediately. Uh, There's an interview with students who are in the band room, and the band director uh, heard the shots and told them to get out of the building. There were some athletic coaches that told students to get away from the school as quickly as possible. In all public places, when there's a shooting, an explosion, a chemical, a gas leak, just about any hazard, we tell people to get away from it. The first part of run, hide, fight is run. Getting as far away from a threat as quickly as possible is what can save lives. And it sounds like this shooting occurring at this time period before students were set, getting everybody out of the building as quickly as possible, got them away from the shooter. And that may be a change over the coming years in the country where instead of this idea of locking down inside a classroom, like what happened in Uvalde, that instead get students away from the building as quickly as possible, because that means they're getting away from the person with the gun. If you've just joined us, David Reedman is with me for this portion of the program, a conversation from earlier today, founder and independent researcher, founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database. David, this took the shooting yesterday took place in Perry, a community of about 8,000. Um, what does your database say about the size of the community in which these shootings take place? The shooting in Perry actually follows the pattern of other shootings over the last 60 years. Of the 10 shootings with the highest number of casualties, eight of those 10 were in small communities with a population of 50,000 or less. And most recently in Uvalde, Texas, that is a very small community on the outskirts of a larger metro area. Um, So Perry really fits that pattern. You hear people say, we never thought that this could happen in a community like this. Uh, But the reality is that some of the most violent attacks on schools over the last 60 years happen in some of the smallest communities across the country. What are your thoughts on why that should be? I don't have a specific theory on on why. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're dealing with this tragedy from yesterday. David, you've mentioned a couple of common misperceptions. Are there others that you run into, um, uh, school shooting misperceptions, causes, prevention, and so forth? The common misconception is that there is going to be a stranger who attacks a school because it's an easy and accessible target. And that's a concept that came out of post-9-11 terrorism, where a terrorist group is going to try to identify soft targets because they're going to be able to inflict the highest number of of casualties in those areas. School shootings are not like terrorism. They are very deliberate, purposeful acts by somebody who's connected to the school community. 
And that person is not going to be deterred by security or fortification because they have experienced trauma for months or even years that they connect to the school and they feel that their only option is this very violent public suicide at that school. The only way to stop that is not securing the building, it's identifying somebody who's in crisis. So we need to prevent these attacks before they ever escalate to the point of somebody bringing a gun to school. Yeah. And and talk a little bit more about that, someone in crisis, uh, because this is so much of our political debate about gun violence. Someone in crisis is not necessarily, and probably not, or could it be, someone with a diagnosable uh, mental illness? Now, in most cases, people who commit school shootings and mass public shootings are not mentally ill. Uh, They've gone through a deliberate planning process for weeks or months or even years. What we need to do is focus on public education so that people around a person who's thinking about violence, their friends, classmates, coworkers, relatives, know the warning signs. And then we need a standardized reporting system similar to what See Something, Say Something was after 9-11, where it is a seamless, frictionless process where somebody can report um, concerns. Without that, from the interviews with students, there were people, students, classmates, who said this was the last straw. For somebody to say this was the last straw, they saw dozens of the preceding straws And reporting those problems as they were building is an opportunity to prevent this violence from happening. So what a crisis intervention program does is at a community level, it teaches people to understand the warning signs of somebody who's in distress and provides a pathway to get that person varying levels of assistance before something like prolonged chronic bullying turns into a school shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are just days here in Iowa away from the caucuses. Of course, uh, candidates uh, have been crisscrossing the state for many months now here. Also, next week, our Iowa legislative session begins. What are your thoughts uh, and messages for those who hold elected office uh, or are vying for elected office in terms of public policy uh, that you see as most effective in preventing these types of shootings? Across the country, there are a lot of investments being made into physical security at schools. But somebody who is planning an attack and is an insider, a student who understands that facility, is going to be able to bypass that security, and they're not going to be deterred by it because the school is their only target. So instead of putting a lot of money into physical security, which has not worked as the last 10 years, school shootings have only become more frequent and more deadly. What we instead need to do is fund crisis intervention programs in communities where people can recognize and provide resources to somebody who's in distress. And that goes beyond just preventing a school shooting. It helps with suicide, depression, abuse, substance abuse, and so on. 
And these also need to be paired with a federal red flag law. When people identify someone who's in crisis, we need to have the legal mechanisms where police departments can take action and remove access to a weapon from somebody who's a risk to themselves and others. Last year at Central Visual and Performing Arts High School in St. Louis, a former student's mother called police and said, I'm concerned that my son is plotting a school shooting and he's purchased an AR-15 rifle. And St. Louis police came to her house and they said, under Missouri law, we're not permitted to take this weapon because a crime hasn't been committed. And a couple days later, he went into CVPA high school with the rifle and 600 rounds, and he shot nine people. There are failures at the state level to allow police to prevent school shootings. We need to pass federal legislation that enables every single police officer in the country to stop the next attack. With our political divisions in this country, how hopeful are you that this these sorts of crisis intervention changes will be made in, in law and public policy, David? Unfortunately, there will be a tipping point that, re, that we reach where changes will need to happen. Uh, last year, there were 10 times as many shootings at schools as there were a decade ago. I've collected data for 60 years now, and from 1966 through 2017, there were between 30 and 50 shootings on school campuses every year. The last two years, there have been over 300. And so there will come a point where people will say the status quo is unacceptable. Each one of these shootings follows the same patterns. There are multiple opportunities for prevention. We just need to provide the tools and have uh, the public engaged in preventing these attacks. It's completely attainable. It's just a matter of people deciding that this is a priority. David Reedman, thank you for joining us. I, I wish it uh, were on better circumstances than um, to have you on a day after the tragedy in Perry, Iowa. David Reedman, founder of K-12 through School Shooting Database, uh, tracking this sort of data uh, since 2018. David, thank you very much for your views and your uh, database. Thank you very much. So sorry that the communities in Iowa had to experience this, and we really need to take action so the next community doesn't need to suffer as well. After a short break, a conversation with the Reverend Andrea Brownlee of the First Christian Church in Perry. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Much of our program, if you've been with us, devoted to the shooting at Perry High School yesterday morning that left one sixth grader dead. Uh, the 17-year-old shooter took his own life. Uh, joining us now, the Reverend Andrea Brownlee of First Christian Church in Perry. Um, that church, part of the Perry Ministerial Association, a collection of churches within the community, Reverend Brownlee, uh, welcome to our program, and uh, our thoughts and, and hearts are, are with the community of Perry at this time. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me on, and we appreciate your thoughts and prayers as well. You attended a candlelight vigil at a park yesterday evening in Perry. Tell us about that scene and what took place. Yes, that uh, vigil was put together by the Perry Ministerial Association as well as some others within the community who all kind of had that we need to do something um, thought and feeling within themselves. Um, And I have no idea how many people ended up being there, um, but there was a large crowd gathered. Um, There were lots of prayers offered by clergy and by just community members. Um, There was hot chocolate and therapy dogs and just, it was a, uh, a calming presence, I felt um, as though those who had gathered um, were there to support one another. Um, there was just an outpouring of of hope, I think, in the midst of that gathering um, and knowing that this is a long journey of recovery for our community um, and that reminder that we're not in it alone. Um, there were um, ministers and others from outside the community who came and were part of that vigil, um, who lifted prayers, who shared their thoughts for the community and their hope for um, our journey through this um, tragedy together. Um, and so I, it was just a time for people to be reminded, I think most importantly, that we aren't alone um, and that others are here to support us um, on the on the way to the other side of this tragedy. Yeah, indeed, you are not alone. We are thinking about you uh, so much um, on this day after. Uh, I wonder, Reverend Brownlee, when a tragedy like this strikes, uh, what is your sense of what people are seeking uh, from their faith, uh, from their community? I think most, most people are seeking understanding, um, wanting to know why. Um, I began my prayer um, at the vigil yesterday by asking God, why? Why here? Why us? Um, Why now? Um, And I think those are the questions that a lot of people were asking yesterday. Um, I think so we come together to to try to figure that out, Um, not to place blame or to point fingers, but to say, why, why did this happen and how can we come together in the midst of it? I think that's a lot of what people are seeking is that comfort of being together um, and starting to be okay with the not knowing why, but knowing yeah. that we are are going to make it through it together. Mm-hmm. What um, are the churches in Perry offering uh, to the community, uh, to the school district yeah. uh, in the after aftermath here? Yes, the um, Church leaders are uh, available. Uh, Every minister in every church in Perry is available for individuals or groups um, that would like to be together or would like someone to talk with. 
Um, there are also counselors available at the Perry Public Library today um, and tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Um, and at St. Patrick's School as well um, today. I'm not sure if they're at St. Pat's tomorrow, um, but I know they're there today from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Um, so counselors and pastoral care are available in both of those places kind of publicly, but every minister in, in Perry is available um, if there are individuals or groups that would like to be more um, private in their in their sharing or their um, time together. Um, you just simply need to reach out to any church in, in the community um, and a pastor will make themselves available today, tomorrow, six weeks from now. Um, the clergy are here um, in this community for the for the long haul. We we are with with this community to support them in all the needs that will arise as as the future unfolds from this event. Yeah, that is such a comfort. Um, we'll we'll say goodbye now. And uh, do you have any final thoughts to uh, leave us with as uh, we think about your community and the healing that needs to take place? I, as a clergy member of the clergy, I never dreamed I would be in a community where something like this happened. Um, but I believe that small towns are notoriously good at coming out stronger on the other end of tragedy. And I believe that Perry is no different. Um, together, we will become a stronger community, um, united in this tragedy, um, making steps to together to to heal and to grow um, from what has happened. The Reverend Andrea Brownlee of the First Christian Church in Perry, Iowa. Reverend Brownlee, thank you for your time and your thoughts. Thank you. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, the 2024 Iowa legislative session begins next week, and uh, most Mondays during the session here on River to River, we'll be focusing on the major bills and debate surrounding them. And very often, I'll be co-hosting those Monday shows uh, with IPR state government reporter Katerina Sestarek. She joins, she joins me now with a preview of this legislative session. Hi, Katerina. Hi, Ben. Before I ask you about the agenda the governor and Republican legislators have for this session, uh, I want to ask you about reaction from our elected leaders to the Perry school shooting. What can you say there? Well, Governor Kim Reynolds was in Perry yesterday. She spoke during a news conference. Um, she called the shooting a senseless tragedy that's shaken the state to its core. Uh, and she said the state will work to get the answers to why the shooting happened so that they can prevent it from happening again. Um, I think it's worth noting a couple of years ago, she directed $100 million of federal funding to school shooting prevention, things like getting emergency radios for schools and making buildings more secure. Um, she's also signed laws to roll back gun regulations. Um, and earlier yesterday, top Democrats in the legislature said that it was just too soon to say how Iowa's gun policies may have affected the shooting. Senate Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst says that when the investigation is complete, state lawmakers should do everything they can to prevent future mass shootings. Iowa has a Republican trifecta, the Republican Party controlling the offices of governor, um, secretary of state, um, attorney general, both chambers of the state legislature. Um, what are the governor's priorities uh, as uh, she leads this trifecta? Well, um, probably the top one that she always likes to talk about is cutting income taxes. Um, top Republicans uh, seem to be in agreement that they want to speed up existing tax cuts. 
Um, so right now, there's already a law that says Iowa's uh, personal income tax will become a flat tax of 3.9% in 2026. Um, but they want to speed that up, make it happen sooner. Um, Iowa has just continued to have a very large budget surplus. So Republicans say that the state is collecting too much money from Iowans, even as state revenue has started to decline because of the tax cuts. Um, and then they might make some deeper cuts. Um, Reynolds has said she will have a tax cut plan, but she hasn't said what it'll be yet. Um, she does. She has said she wants to eliminate the income tax, but we don't know if this will be the year that that gets set into motion. Um, and in terms of eliminating the income tax, that'll be, you know, I think a much larger conversation that all the Republican leaders aren't necessarily aligned on right now. Mm -hmm. Education, also an area lawmakers have in their sights. Again, this year we had significant, um, well, uh, legislation there enacted. Uh, what, what's next and perhaps tie it into what happened last year? Yeah, so um, the governor has said that she wants to do a comprehensive review of Iowa's area education agencies. So those are these nine regional agencies that provide services to kids with disabilities in public and private school and even before kids attend school. Um, and so they also these agencies also do some training and tech support for teachers. And the governor has said that these agencies have expanded beyond their original scope and that kids with disabilities aren't doing as well on test scores as um, she wants them to be doing and that services for them should be better. But it's really not clear yet what she is going to be proposing in terms of changes to the AEAs. Um, she said she doesn't want to get rid of them. Um, but we'll learn more on Tuesday about that when the governor sets out her priorities in the condition of the state address. Mm -hmm. uh, in the two or so minutes that we have remaining, list some other priorities by Republicans. Um, the governor is also expected to propose reducing state boards and commissions by 43 percent. Um, so these boards and commissions do things like license doctors. They advise state officials on pesticide regulations. There's just a whole bunch of these boards and commissions. Um, and this is part of Reynolds' effort to reorganize and streamline state government. So um, I'm sure there will be just an ongoing debate about, you know, which boards and commissions um, should be eliminated and which shouldn't. Part of that proposal would also be repealing the law that requires boards and commissions to have an equal number of men and women. Um, supporters of that say that it could be difficult to find people to serve on state boards, especially those that oversee prof professions dominated by men or women. Um, but, you know, opponents say that gender balance is still important and we need a diversity of perspectives um, on these boards that are making important decisions. Um, yeah, and that's um, probably going to round out the top three things that we definitely know the governor is going to propose. Mm -hmm. I understand also public universities, um, also something that the Republicans uh, may be addressing. Yeah, it's been really vague. You know, um, House Speaker Pat Grassley you mentioned that he wants to get the state's public universities back to their core mission and to ensure that they're really um, focusing on filling workforce needs, but he hasn't really said, you know, what that'll entail. Um, and so we'll just have to see, you know, wait for more details on what they're proposing there. Okay. Thank you very much uh, to our state government. Thank you very much to our state government reporter, Katerina Sestarek. And a reminder that uh, you can join me and Katerina Monday on this program. Uh, she'll be co-hosting with me and we'll be talking with Iowa legislative leaders uh, more about uh, the priorities that uh, Katerina has just outlined and, and other issues as well. For now, thank you very much, Katerina. Thanks, Ben.
And that does it for this January 5th edition of River to River, our News Buzz edition, the first uh, Friday News Buzz of the new year. On this date in 1950, Gene Autry's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer hit number one on the Billboard Pop Charts, uh, selling over 8 million copies. Now to someone we know who has a keen nose for the best new music and old favorites, Tony Daner joins me from IPR Studio One to groove us into the weekend. Hi, Tony. Hi, Ben. My <laughs> nose is even a little red right now. I don't know if I have, a, <laughs> I don't know if I have some sort of uh, some, some zetter coming in or what. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, who the heck knows? <laughs> all right. Uh, groove us into the weekend. What do you have to start us off with? You bet. Let's start with an album that came out later in 2023 that you might have missed. It is from the duo The Kills. Uh, Allison Mosshart and Jamie Hintz are the kills, and they're really known for a couple things. Allison Mosshart's incredible vocals, which shine through because the band takes a really kind of minimal approach to instrumentation and percussion and the kind of backgrounds. Very effective the way they use, sparingly use their instruments. Their new record is called God Games, which came out at uh, the end of October, October 27, I think. And this was an album we didn't really give its proper due when it came out because of the insanity of the holiday season. We got a little more breathing room now, so we're going to start spinning this album a little more regularly. This is the first single. It's The Kills with New York. Wow, Tony, what a compelling driving beat to that uh, right, with, yeah. with the uh, <laughs> Allison Mosshart's uh, vocals. Wow, that's unbeatable. The Kills, an American, um, English-American rock duo, I should say. Yeah. New York, the title of that tune. Thank you for that. For sure, yeah. What's next? We have time for one more, Tony. Okay, here's a band that might be a little more familiar to our listeners. They have been in Iowa a couple of times at a couple of our major music festivals, and they've got a new record coming later this month, Future Islands. The Samuel Herring, the voice of this uh, synth-pop band, really unique voice and incredible stage presence. If you get a chance to see him perform, don't miss it. Uh, you'll unforgettable performer, Samuel Herring. Uh, he's been, they've been at both Hinterland and 8035. We have been playing this single from their upcoming album, People Who Aren't There Anymore. The record comes out at the near the end of January, but we've been playing this song for a while, Future Islands and The Tower. That's my will and testament.
Future Islands with the Tower. Love that sound as well. The pop band based, I think, in Maryland. Uh, Tony Daner, thank you so much. We'll go out with Future Islands to end this edition of uh, News Buzz River to River. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful weekend. And, of course, remind us how we can uh, uh, tune in to IPR Studio One. Of course, you have all access, one to four on Saturdays, but seven nights a week, uh, the best new music and old favorites, right? Yep, that's seven nights a week. Mark Simmet, CeCe Mitchell, and I with uh, your daily soundtrack, as we call it, 7 o'clock, right after Marketplace. All right. Take care. Have a wonderful weekend, Tony. Thanks, Ben. You too. River to River today, produced by Samantha McIntosh, our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have a wonderful weekend.